Well, for those of you who've been following along and paying attention, uh, I think that's probably most of you. Um, Pastor Aaron and I have been following Jesus the last few weeks through the last 24 hours of his life. It actually doesn't even do a, the full 24 hours in this uh, current teaching series. And this is the sixth week that we're uh, talking about uh, these, this last period of his life. And this week, it got me wondering, what are the reasons for reporting so many details about the last hours of Jesus' life? Uh, okay, let's just be honest. I'm a little impatient. When are we going to get to the good parts? noticed that the four records of Jesus life uh, contain so much about the last hours of his life up through but from his arrest to his death and uh, burial I did some checking this week I, I well I'm a nerd okay uh, one of my one of my pastor friends says uh, we're, we're Bible geeks What's the difference between a geek and a nerd? I don't know. But I'm probably guilty on both counts. So this is what I found out. Mark, gospel in his record of Jesus' life, Mark devoted 108 verses to Jesus' arrest, crucifixion, and burial. And he gave Resurrection Sunday eight verses. The good part got eight verses. Well, the part we call the good part, the part we just sang about, the part we celebrate week in and week out got eight verses. The part that leads up to that, 108 verses. Now, those of you who are the math people, you can figure out how much more that is. I'm not going to try Luke, well, Luke wrote 121 verses about Jesus' passion, his arrest through his death and, uh, death and burial, and only 40 verses about the resurrection. John recorded 237 verses on Jesus' last hours. only 23 about Resurrection Sunday. Two hundred thirty-seven verses on Jesus' last hour, and only twenty-three about Resurrection Sunday. In Matthew, the the gospel we've been looking at this uh, this year in, in in this teaching series, Matthew put together one hundred and sixteen verses about Jesus final hours, but only 15 verses about his resurrection on Sunday. There are more details about Jesus' passion and death than there are about his resurrection in all four Gospels. Yeah, I'm just going to, this is on, on the fly, you can double check me 
but two of the Gospels don't even talk about Christmas. And the other two don't talk about the birth of Jesus nearly as much as they talk about his arrest, his passion, his death, and his burial. So that got me thinking, what are the reasons for reporting so many details from those last 24 hours of Jesus' life? What are the reasons? What are the reasons to hang on to that question because we're going to dig into the final moments of Jesus' life as they're recorded in Matthew's uh, gospel as his account. Matthew chapter 27 verses 50 to 66. Give you a moment to look. Matthew 27 verses 50 to 66. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion, the Roman officer, and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled the big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees <coughs> went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Don't make the tomb as secure as you know how. I'm sorry. 
I almost laugh out loud every time I read that. It's almost like Pilate has an idea that this isn't going to do any good. Here, here's some soldiers. Go do the best you can. Good luck. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Jesus never looked less like the Son of God than he did when they dragged him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, that's not quite true because Jesus never looked less like God's Son than when they were slapping him and scorning him and spitting on him during his fake trial. No. See, Jesus never looked less like God's son than when he stood silent before the Pilate, the Roman governor, as the mob screamed for his crucifixion. It grew worse. Jesus never looked less like the son of God than when the Roman soldiers stripped him naked, whipped him mercilessly, mocked him, beat him, and forced him out of town to the hill for crucifixion. He never looked less like the Son of God than when the soldiers nailed his naked, mutilated body to the cross and then divided his clothes. It's still worse. Jesus never looked less like God's Son and when the crowd laughed at him and called out, If you're God's son, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Jesus never looked less like the son of God than when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Step. Jesus definitely never looked less godlike than once when once again he cried out loudly and breathed his last. That's rock bottom. Dead. A corpse hanging on a cross. Every claim to being God's son disappeared with Jesus' last breath. No one ever looks at a dead body and goes, wow, that's God. Or do they? When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and all that happened, they were <coughs> terrified and exclaimed, surely he was God's son. Can you imagine? 
This is the guy they beat and abused and mocked and crucified. And now, all of a sudden, as they look at his dead corpse hanging on a cross, they realize we just killed the Son of God. No wonder they were terrified. As they gazed at Jesus' body hanging on the cross where they executed him, it was now never more obvious to these soldiers, this has to be God's son. Indeed, this is God's son. So, this is a sermon in a sentence. This is what I want you to remember above all else. Jesus never looked less godlike, but it was never more obvious, at least to the soldiers. When he died, Jesus did not look like God. He looked like a dead person, a dead human being. But it became obvious to these soldiers as they saw him and said, all what happened and how he died. This is no mere man. Now we like to tend to rush ahead to the end of the story, but I think we need to linger here. Dare I say we need to linger here with a corpse. God's Son died for us. I was born and raised in the Protestant branch of the Christian family tree. One of the things I've heard us say in our branch is that we're not like those Catholics. always talking about Jesus on the cross as God is still hanging on the cross. Well, after I did the math this week, maybe we should have him hanging on the cross a little more. If, as we say, we believe the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the records of Jesus' life, and they had spent way more time talking about him hanging on the cross than they did about him walking out of the tomb on Sunday morning. Maybe we need to spend more time thinking about him on the cross. I'm sure we'll never unpack all that it means for him, for Jesus to have the Son of God, who have died for us. I know we won't. But I invite you to stay with those soldiers and consider, surely, this is God's Son. So what are the reasons for reporting so many details? Why would the Holy Spirit 
inspire these authors to record so many details from the last hours of Jesus' life. I'm not going to tell you that I know for sure, but I'm going to tell you what I think. I believe one of the reasons, at least, is that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us the extent of God's love. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in the city of Ephesus in the first century that he had prayed that God would unveil within you them. He said this. This is, not, this is how he wrote it. He said, I pray that God will unveil in you the unlimited riches of his glory and favor until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with his divine might and explosive power. Then, by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ may be released deep inside you and the resting place of his love will become the very source and root of your life. Then you will be empowered to discover what every child of God experiences, the great magnitude of the astonishing love of Christ in all its dimensions, how deeply intimate and far-reaching is his love. How enduring and inclusive it is. Endless love beyond measurement that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into you until you are filled to overflowing. Oh, I want some of that. I'm going to say that. I want all of that. I want all of that. Holy Spirit wants to reveal to you individually and collectively, but to you, I'm going to speak to you individually at this point. He wants to reveal to you the extent of God's love for you. So you need to linger with the, the corpse. You need to linger with Jesus, the Son of God who died for you. Stay <coughs> with that fact for a while. <coughs> I'm sure you will never unpack all that that means. No one will. Anybody who thinks they have needs to stop and think some more because it just ain't so. Wait with those soldiers. Think about the love of God. Invite the Holy Spirit to pour Jesus in. Those words of Paul are awesome. Invite the Holy Spirit to pour Jesus' extravagant love into you, into you, until you are filled to overflowing. Until people that come close to you get splashed with his extravagant love. They don't need to bump into you, it just splashes out all the time. Can you imagine? Well, what can we experience if we <coughs> accept Holy Spirit's invitation? He's the one inviting us to gaze on Jesus. What could happen? To, to the world that doesn't yet know Jesus loves them, if we became so full of his love that they just constantly getting splashed by us. 
him through us. In John's record of the night before his crucifixion, Jesus put it this way. He says to us, as he said to his first disciples, I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now, we've heard that, many of us, multiple times. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're supposed to love people. That's what Christians do. We love people. We nod our heads and go, yep, yep, yep. That's what we do. Well, this is what I have observed. There are at least three steps in the development of this kind of love. I mean, this, remember, this, just as I have loved you is the standard. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. There are three steps, at least, in this development. The first step is that we love others for our own sake. We, we attempt to love others because Jesus told us to do it, and we want to obey him. I mean, after all, we don't want to get in trouble. We're kind of like the little kid who apologizes because mom said so, and we don't want to time out because, you know, because we refuse to do it. Right? Uh, so we find ways to redefine love. We don't do it on purpose. We don't just sit down and go, okay, I'm going to redefine what love is so I can make it easier for me to love people. But we tend to just kind of drift into this way of saying that we're loving people by being nice and polite to them. We're kind of like, um, we live and let live. We just kind of leave them alone. Because if I don't leave them alone, I'm going to lay hands on them and I don't mean that in a nice way. So if I just pretend they're not there, or I'm polite to them, but I have to be, and then the Holy Spirit comes along and he reminds us, the Holy Spirit says to us, Jesus said, love each other just as I have loved you. thing we do is go, well, thank you, Lord, for not just letting you be lived and let live. You could have just stayed in heaven and gone, you do your own thing, I don't care. You don't bother me, I don't bother you. Thank you for loving me the way you love me, Jesus. Now I realize I need to start loving people better than I've been loving them. And then we start loving people a different way. The second step is we start to love people for their sake. We start to realize that if I'm going to love people the way Jesus does, I'm going to start loving them for their sake. And, and that, however, then because we're trying to do it in our own strength and our own ability, which it, it kind of it, it kind of drifts into being about their feelings. And, and we, we again 
fall into the, the trap of redefining love and, and we start calling love anything that doesn't hurt their feelings. We just don't want to make them upset. And then the Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus said, love each other just as I have loved you. And we remember that Jesus is willing to tell us the truth even when it hurts. With a tear in his eye. Someone once, one of my mentors once said, if you enjoy telling people hard truth, you should never do it. If it doesn't bring a tear to your eye, you're not doing it because you love them. You're doing it because you think it's fun. It should make your heart ache. Once the Holy Spirit confronts us again, it brings us possibly to the third step whereby the grace of God alone, we learn to love each uh, love others for God's sake. We learn to love them as Jesus loved us. To love another person for God's sake, to love them as Jesus loved us means to love them with exactly the same kind of love that Jesus loved us with. It's impossible for us to do that without God, without the Holy Spirit. When we love others as Jesus loved us, it becomes a crucifixion choice. This is part of what Jesus meant when he told us to follow him, we need to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. See, when, when we love as Jesus loved us, it involves giving up our wants, our rights, our privileges, our plans for other people's benefits. Not ours. Theirs. It means like following Jesus' example. Just think for a moment, what might happen to us and through us if we were all filled to overflowing with Jesus' extravagant love like this? Let's find out. I want us to ponder Jesus' endless love that took him to the cross to die for us. Brought him from the throne of heaven to a manger, to a cross and a grave. Let's ask for a fresh experience of his love that's beyond measure, it's beyond our understanding. See, communion is a way for us to experience God's love. Our church served open communion, which simply means that you don't have to be a member of our, our local congregation or our denomination uh, to share the Lord's meal with us. We invite everyone to participate. 
asking only that you have a personal relationship with Jesus, that you will continue following him to join us in this act of worship. If, if you need to renew your relationship with Jesus, or if you've never made a commitment to him as your Lord and Savior, but you're ready to do that, then this is the time. This is no better time or no better place than as we remember what he's done for us. Communion is a reminder that Jesus gave his life for us. We declare our desire to give our lives back to him when we eat this bread and drink this cup. They are visible reminders of his presence, of his body and the blood that he sacrificed on the cross as the ultimate signs of God's love. Whether you choose to partake of bread and the cup today or if you just choose to simply watch in quiet meditation, I hope and pray that this will be a life-changing encounter for you with the awesome truth that the God who created everything loves you. you to peel the bottom of the chalice and take out the little piece of bread. Remember with me what Jesus said that we should eat this bread and remember that his body was broken for us. Jesus in these moments as we remember your sacrifice for us. As we gaze on your body. sense the depths of your love. <clears throat> Through your Holy Spirit, we ask you to light a fire of love to burn sweetly deep inside of us. And with that love to gently consume every motive, thought,
entirely their loved land until their love shines in all of the world. That's how the people think we're loving people. They say that they know the truth. Jesus, we give ourselves to you, take full possession of our lives. You are our King, the King of eternal glory. Allow us to hunger and thirst for you. moments open our eyes, our spiritual eyes to see you. <coughs> Jesus, we love you because you first loved. Thank you again for connecting um, with us today. Particularly want to ask those of you who are invited, those of you who are online, if you've not joined the Champions of Hope Facebook group to do so. Um, get a chance to connect with others who are infusing people with the hope of Jesus. Well, um, as you go out, I encourage you to stay alert, stand firm in your trust of Jesus, show courage, be strong, give it all you got, and love everyone you meet as Jesus has loved you. A huge door of opportunity for good work is open here in our community and beyond. There, there may also be some opposition, but... That's okay. You are sent to make the most of the opportunity God has given us. Go with King Jesus in the Holy Spirit's power. You are sent.